Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt E-Commerce Gerasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. I have two desks and I'm unstoppable now. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two or a bottle or two. Uh, this week, <laughs> <laughs> this week we're going to be taking a look at two of Andrei Platanov's short stories, The Cow and The Third Son. But before we get into that, Matt, what are you drinking today? I am, again, like a good co-host, drinking a local brew. I am drinking Fist City, a Chicago Pale Ale from Revolution Brewing. Ooh. Thank you, Revolution Brewing. I'd love your name and your aesthetic. I wish you would send me beer, but uh, <laughs> hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do besides sponsoring us, basically? <laughs> basically. What about you? What are you drinking? Well, I took you drinking uh, local brews as a challenge. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this week, I live close to a town called Dixon, and there's a microbrewery there that's based on the Roostaller farm. So this week, I am drinking Empiric, which is a... Or actually, I don't know if the name is Empiric or if the name is Grisette M35. It's a farmhouse wheat beer, and it is not an actual release. I think it's just like a, a test because it, there's nothing on the case besides just Roostaller beer, what it is, and then... 45 cases so hmm. beat that next week you're really one-upping me i'm gonna have to start <laughs> brewing my own beer basically <laughs> <laughs> i think sacramento's has one of the greatest densities of or the sacramento mm. area region has one of the greatest densities of breweries in america so <laughs> good luck with that one it's hard because we actually do have a couple breweries that are specific to the area that we live not to chicago in general but a I can't I can't go because they're closed, like they're indoor dining and stuff where you would normally get yeah. their stuff. I mean, I could do curbside pickup, but then I got to drive in the snow. It's Chicago life, baby. What do you want? <laughs> but uh, one of these days I will one up you just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> one day we'll get there. But before we get there, Matt, why are you e-commerce this week? So if you know anything about me, you know that I love get rich quick schemes and my get rich quick scheme slash new hobby this week is not starting my own e-commerce store, but researching e-commerce. And I've watched far too many videos of people on YouTube being like, here's how I made $1 million a week selling rebranded t-shirts or mugs or whatever. And so I hate myself while I do it, but I think, hey, maybe one day I'll make money. Who's to say? I just wanted to find some cool tips so that I could learn how to better do like podcast merch basically but yeah it was so difficult because every video i watched was somebody just like uh you know i'm gonna show you my store stats so you know that i'm legit and it's like stop showing me the money you're making i still believe that this is (laughs) that this is photoshop i don't believe you're really making this much money doing what you're doing with the knowledge that you have my favorite part is how absolutely no one talks about supply lines because i suspect it doesn't exist until after they get the orders no, I suspect they're taking your money, putting it into a, a satchel, and running off into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> Until they make YouTube videos about it. Yeah, more or less. But if I were to make YouTube videos, I would choose a location that had two desks. How are your two desks treating you? Treating me great. I Well, so the second desk is supposed to be a hobby desk, and that is what it is for. But it's also become my mug desk, hmm. which is why I currently have three mugs there. Because it's really easy to ignore mugs when I, they're not in my vision. But once I get this cleaned off, it's going to be an excellent space for painting. Like just trash mugs, dirty mugs, discarded mugs? Yeah, well, when I leave for work in the morning, I, the last thing I do before I go is check my emails. So mm-hmm. I just come back with my like cup of coffee, check my emails, look at the time, realize that I'm mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. already late, and then run out the door leaving the mug in my extra desk. Uh, and they just accumulate throughout the week. Yeah, that happens. 
Sometimes you need a whole desk for it, you know? Sometimes you need a whole desk for your mugs. Who am I to judge? You look at my desk and you know that I'm, I'm a man of folly because I've got <laughs> um, somewhere around 100 paint bottles and like racks and a big airbrush and a gigantic microphone, which I've spent too much money on, and a bunch of half-done miniature figures, which are like all half-painted. So you really know that I've got my shit together uh, in a way that is, indicates that I actually don't. In, in a way that's just, you know, completely intimidating, inspiring, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I'm inspired. It's inspiring how much money you can waste on a hobby. Oh, it really is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> speaking <laughs> of... <laughs> <laughs> Let's transition to something that's entirely unrelated from this banter. Andre Platonov. Who is he? Yes, something unrelated from the banter, but entirely related to the podcast of which <laughs> you, you, the listener, is tuned in for. Uh, I've got a little bit of background on Andre Platonov because he's interesting. He's somebody most people, I feel like, don't know a ton about. He lived from 1899 to 1950, only receiving high praise after his death in, again, 1950. Uh, he was, throughout his life, a railway specialist. He was really into locomotives, which we will see as a recurring theme throughout some of our stories today. He was really fascinated with machines, as were a lot of people who were into communism. This idea of futurism and communism kind of going hand in hand was something that was really big for Platonov. In 1920, when he was just... 21 years old. Yes, I just did the math. He applied and <laughs> was admitted to be a member of the Communist Party. In 20, 1921, however, he was excluded from the party. He reapplied annually, but was always rejected. So in, 19, in the 1930s, he became just a literary critic. He was just kind of a general writer. In 1922, his son was born. However, shortly thereafter, in 1938, his son was arrested for preparing an assault on... Comrade Stalin with some of his friends and was sent to a hard labor camp. Platonov was able to essentially get his son out of the camp in 1942, not too long after he was sent there. However, his son got sick and died shortly after, probably because of the horrific conditions and malnutrition in the camps. Uh, the same year, in 1942, his daughter Maria was born. So Platonov died in 1951 after contracting TB from his son while he was caring for him, and this condition was exacerbated from exhaustion and malnourishment from his time in the war, or as a war correspondent. And so that's a little bit of a, just a background on his life. His philosophy of life, however, is probably equally as interesting. He was somebody who deeply believed in the idea of communism, and that shows in the stories that we're about to read today. He had some skepticism with the way that it was pursuing in the Soviet Union. He believed in communism based on basic human needs. It wasn't For him, it wasn't just a philosophy or a construct. It was something that was natural to people. It's the way that we're supposed to live, according to Platonov. He had a couple of things that kind of went along with this. He really liked the idea of the family. For him, the family was something that was really high in value. Relationships between people was really, really high on his list of needs and wants as something that he felt that we needed. Um, although he was an atheist, he felt this kind of need for a spiritual connection between people and families, and that kind of permeates some of the stories that we're going to read today. Right. Platonov had really interesting poetics. He used uh, unusual language and compositions and phrases to formulate new ideas that he was purporting throughout his works. 
Um, one of one of these things as a kind of root to his idea of communism in life is that he he doesn't really believe in the idea of evil. He believes in tragic good. He had a really hard time of accepting the idea of evil, that that could exist and that somebody could be at their core an evil person that didn't really exist for him. And so that enabled him to believe that we could all kind of commune in a non-religious way and establish this ideal communism and society. And we'll see how that kind of plays out. It sounds very abstract in concept, but it, it does play out in the two stories that we're going to read today. I did want to point out before we go forward into the stories themselves that you can, speaking of the idea of communism based on human needs and sort of almost a family-oriented aspect, uh, you could probably see that just in his life based on how Platonov came of age during the Civil War. Between 1917 and 1922, he was, of course, 18 through 23. And you can kind of see that in some of his writing that even though in his older years, he never really... Uh, he kind of stays with the same themes and in including one of his, at least today, most famous books, John or Soul. Uh, it really gets to the idea of community as re as it relates to kind of groups of people who had connections with each other, which kind of, I think you can see, at least if you're studying Soviet history, connects to early earlier Soviet politics, especially the Soviet policy of Kornizatsiya. Korin in, in Russian kind of means heart. So it's basically the process of applying socialism in culturally relevant ways. And of course, as Stalin comes to power, that shifts more so in towards a Russo-centric sort of communism. But I think you can kind of see over time his version of communism that he grew up in and was supportive of in his early years, how that would later shift and go away from what he was interested in, or at least what he believed was truly communism. Uh, and before we get in, I have two quotations that I want to read. In the copy that I have, uh, Raymond Chandler writes an introduction, and I had two quotes from that that I found really funny and also enlightening. So first is, An important part of Platonov's greatness lies in his ability to evoke this fragility, and to describe suffering in such a way as to restore this sufferer his or her lost dignity which I think will be relevant in the upcoming stories. And secondarily, uh, this is a quotation from a, a writer in the Soviet Union called um, A.S. Gervich. Um, this is actually from a denouncement that Gervich wrote in 1937. Uh, but however, though this is a denouncement, this particular line I found really funny. Wherever a lonely man might be wandering, Platonov follows him like a relentless shadow, as if afraid that someone's mute grief might die in obscurity without giving birth to answering sorrow. Uh, again, that's a denouncement, but it's kind of funny uh, and a little bit accurate. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so let's get into the cow. I just, before we totally get into it, I think we yeah. should, I would like to include denouncements from here on out in our podcast so we can see <laughs> how stupid some of the denouncements were. Okay. I thought you meant like we were going to start writing our own denouncements. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready to take on literary debate on that level yet. <laughs> fair uh yeah if we can find them I'll, i will definitely include them i feel like for the most part all of the soviet writers we've covered were denounced in one way or another at some point yeah 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 uh, until we get to so the the socialist realism text that were held up as like <laughs> this is our literature now oops <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah be that as it may let's get into the cow so the cow is a story which is ostensibly about the cow but really is about a boy named Vasya Rubtsov. And Vasya lives on a collective farm. 
He is quite an intelligent boy. He plans to see the world. He knows that his dream is to travel one day, and he's just trying to get out of his small world of just his home and his collective farm and his school. One day, uh, Vasya is hanging out with the cow before Vasya's mother instructs him to go signal the train that stops on their land to let them know that it's all clear, which is normally Vasya's father's job, but Vasya's father is currently in the city to bring the cow's calf to a vet because the calf had not been doing well. The boy signals the train. It's having issues. He he shows his adeptness with trains by actually correcting the engineer on what he should be doing in order to get the train to go past. And after that happens, Vasya's father shows up and tells Vasya that he ended up selling the calf for meat, for money, because it's cheaper when it's young and tender. Uh, the next day, the cow is completely distraught. It's, as Platonov describes in great detail really distressed that its calf is not there, and because it's an animal, it does not have any way to understand uh, any way that it can redirect that feeling. So although the family tries to be nice to the cow to feed it, it basically is just not having any of it. It's sad, it's listless, it's not doing its work. One day, even when Vasya is trying to hug the cow, just runs away. Eventually the cow comes back, but it's just not the same. Nothing they do makes anything, makes any difference to her. One day when Vasya comes back from school, he sees his father and the conductor from the train at the beginning of the story dragging their cow's carcass off the tracks. The conductor says that they saw the cow from a far distance away, but the conductor thought the cow was going to get off as he was whistling at it and trying to get it to move, but it just stayed, basically. And there was no time for him to turn on the brakes. The conductor promises to give Vasya's father some money for it. His father says, well, we'll sell the meat so we can work towards getting a new cow. And that's basically the end of the cow. The next day, Vasya, still mourning the cow, is assigned an essay about how he can be useful and work for the motherland and writes that he doesn't know and then details at length the life of his cow and then basically says that he wants to live like that cow. This is a really difficult story to summarize. I'm realizing as you're summarizing it because the real intricacies of the story are the way that Platonov describes the cow mm -hmm. yes. and the way that the cow is very human-like in a lot of ways, but also very distinct. Right. But I think that this, it speaks a lot to Platonov's ideas about communism and society in general. If I may, I will read the paragraph that Vasya writes in his school essay, which Platonov is nice enough to allow us to read as the reader. Vasya writes, I do not know how I will live. I have not thought about it yet. We had a cow while she lived. My mother, my father, and I all ate milk from her. Then she had a son, a calf, and he ate milk from her too. There were three of us and he made four, and there was enough milk for us all. The cow also plowed and carried loads. Then her son was sold for meat and killed and eaten. The cow was very unhappy, but she soon died from a train. And she was eaten too because she was beef. Now there is nothing. The cow gave us everything, that is, her milk, her sun, her meat, her skin, her innards, and her bones. She was kind. I remember our cow, and I will not forget. And there's something about this story where the real relationship is not between the son and the father where you might expect or where you might see in our second story that we read today, but it's between really just this young boy and the cow that lives on their collective farm. Right. And, and I think what Platon is trying to get at is... The idea that you should build society around what is natural. Hmm. And clearly there is there is some natural relationship between the boy, the father, and the cow that is completely thrown out of whack. Obviously, when the uh, 
the father sells the calf. Uh, the cow just like doesn't know what to do with itself. And even the father, as it mentions, regrets selling the calf. Even before the cow begins to show all the signs that it has been deeply emotionally affected by this, he thinks that if he had known that this is how he's going to feel just selling the calf, he wouldn't have done it in the first place. I, th I think that this is interesting because I had that line underlined as well. But I, I wonder what this is saying about the father for Platonov, because he says, if I'd known I'd feel like this, I wouldn't have sold him. But he still did sell him. So there's some level of like, there there is some level to this transaction where he felt like he needed to do it and he didn't think about what is in some way like most natural to him. Right. But instead thought about it. He He has been through a society in which commodities are valued. The son and the cow, they don't have that conception of like what is valued. There, There is some, I guess like nowadays we would call it inexperience or we would say, oh, the son is naive. He doesn't know. This is how the real world works or whatever. Uh, and Platonov, I feel like, is pushing back against that idea. Hmm. And he's almost like deconstructing the idea of selling things in general. The idea that you could sell something that's living is... Mm -hmm. Kind of, un it's very unnatural, and it clearly has an effect on the cow and the sun as well. I mean, maybe you could read it as, I wouldn't go so far as to read it as a pure, like, metaphor for something else, but if you want to understand it as there's a, an equilibrium that happens between the family and the cow, it's thrown out of whack, not because of some outside natural event, but an unintentional act on the part of the family, of the humans, of the father, to do what they thought was right, but what ends up actually throwing everything out of alignment. Yeah, I think that it's... The father wasn't, I don't think, intentionally trying to hurt the cow. There are conditions that necessitate things. And in this case, it's mentioned that a lot of places, they're not a very wealthy family. This is their cow that they use to plow their lands and for milk and for a lot of things. And so if he can get a good price for the calf, then in most cases, he's going to, to sell it. And so here, these social conditions are kind of repressing the natural desire to live in this harmonious state with the cow, the calf, the father, and the son. Mm -hmm. By selling this calf, he kind of interrupts this natural order here. I think, and maybe this is, this is slightly off of the themes that we're talking about, but it's hard for me not to think of, because of course this is written the same year that his own son was arrested uh, and put into a labor camp, to see some sense of grieving as a, in a way that's hard to not read in the context of his own son being arrested. And I know it's always dangerous to try to assume an author's intent in something, but I'm going to read a line from The Cow, and I, I, every time I go through this line, I can't not think of the fact that this is the very same year that his son was, son was arrested and taken from him, and, and think that this was not on his mind when this line was being written. Mm -hmm. Vasya stroked and fondled The Cow for a long time, but she remained motionless and indifferent. She only needed one thing her son, the calf, and nothing could replace him, neither a human being, nor grass, nor the sun. The cow did not understand that it is possible to forget one happiness, to find another, and then live again, not suffering any longer. Her dim mind did not have the strength to help her deceive herself. If something had once entered her heart or her feelings, then it could not be suppressed there or forgotten. And of course, he's describing a cow and, and just does an incredible job of, of layering like an emotional life onto this cow, which just from a storytelling perspective is interesting that he's able to characterize it as such. It's impossible for me not to read 
sort of an indirect limitation of his own loss of a child mm-hmm. in this. Yeah, I mean, definitely possible. I feel like he was writing around a time where you would need to layer it very carefully. Which, of course, um, Platonov was sometimes noted for, or at least has been in other by other critics, noted for his ability to layer meaning into his texts, since mm-hmm. he, of course, was often on the margins of acceptability with the establishment of the Soviet Union in the years that he was writing. He definitely was. The copy that I'm reading from says that this was written in 1938 or possibly 1939. So this was late for this kind of work to be written. Yes, It's a very vague and almost spiritual way for communism to be represented. Mm -hmm. Particularly for this time. Like you said, if you're talking about perhaps like an early revolutionary depiction of what you think communism might be once it's established... This might be fine, but you're already talking in, into Stalin. And so right. it's just <laughs> kind of interesting to see something like this written. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, I don't know. There's so many parts of his own life that you could indirectly read. Uh, Vastya's obsession with trains, which, of course, um, Platonov himself was very into trains. In fact, mm-hmm. he was chosen by the head of one of the commissions who oversaw trains in the Soviet Union to travel around and write about, you know, the train system, basically, Mm. which led to another one of his books. Um, So there's a lot of things that are really close to him into this story. And for me, I kind of, as I read it, I kind of see him, I see elements of his own life and also dealing with grief. And I won't go so far as to say is that he's dealing with his son's loss in relation to like the system, you know, this new system that he has supported for so long but it's hard for me not to see that in the context of writing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a depressing one, honestly. <laughs> Unlike everything else we cover on this show. Well, normally this podcast is just like happy-go-lucky, yeah. you know, stuff like that. I will say that it is pretty sad, but I think despite Vasya's final phrase being essentially <laughs> just a real downer, it introduces some sort of dignity i'm going to take raymond chandler's Mm -hmm. phrase here about how platonov treats suffering in his stories the cow experiences a senseless tragedy essentially from its perspective and it dies because of that it it is on a permanent downward spiral from that moment if that's all the story is about then that's just a real downer and vasya feels that downer because he's been there the whole way obviously Uh, however when he has a moment to reflect on it he's not reflecting on her life in fact the fact that um she's unhappy and she dies which is the entirety of the actual story is represented in only a single sentence in the paragraph he writes and what he focuses in, on much more is what the cow did during its life and he concludes that uh, the cow gave us everything and he is going to remember that cow and he is not going to forget and i think that's really interesting because it ends on i will not forget and what comes out of this suffering is, is someone else carries that forward it doesn't just end with tragedy that tragedy becomes a part of someone else and they carry that forward in a way it shapes them now of course for that person who experienced that tragedy that's not really much of a condolence uh but at in the very end tragedy is not simply tragedy tragedy is something that affects the world around you well i don't know if we actually explicitly mentioned it yet maybe i'm just forgetting but when vasya returns home his father has a hundred rubles that uh, the driver from the train that had hit the cow the same train that he had helped with the mechanical problems just a couple of days earlier had thrown down inside of a tobacco pouch because he had mentioned earlier a couple of days back when he had hit the cow that he felt uncomfortable 
not helping the family because he knew how much the cow had helped them out. So he, in a way, paid it forward and literally gave them 100 rubles, which is a lot of money for that point in time. I do not know how much a cow would have cost, but I imagine that that is a pretty good chunk for him to just voluntarily give. And so I think, I, I don't think this is that sad of a story, personally. I think it's more of a, it's almost in a way a philosophical text about a couple things. One is what do we share with all things that are living? And you get that contrast between Vasya and the cow and the way the cow can have things that are very reminiscent of humans, like having bags under their eyes because they're so tired from, from nursing their son or something like that. And then you have this thing that is probably more relevant at the time that Platana was writing this compared to where we are currently, uh, which is what can make communism work. And one of the things for Platanov, I think, is this idea of sharing uh, as being something that is natural and that we feel compelled to do. The way that the cow shares labor and milk with the family and the way that the train conductor shares money and apples, bags of apples as repayment for Vasya earlier in the story for right. well, his labor helping the train. And this is not just something that we feel compelled to do because of social conditions. We feel compelled to do this because it actually gives us it actually gives us some form of self-fulfillment. It makes us not just feel good, but feel like we are valued and valuing others in society. And that is kind of the glue of society. Yeah, I think this is a text that has so many layers that you could read into or, or take away from. And I just really enjoy that because every time I go through, I do see more and more of the themes that you're talking about. This is probably my favorite story by him, I would say. Interesting. It's like, I don't know. I love stories that are just compact. I'm yeah. a real sucker for the Soviet short story. <laughs> Fair enough. It's 10 pages long. It'll make you think about life, your life, Platonov's life, everyone's life. It's so good. Yeah, and even just from on so many on a lower intellectual level, just by the way that Platonov as a writer is able to characterize everyone in 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 different ways, Vasya in terms of how he acts, uh, Vasya's father, and in, in the few phrases he really gets in the stories in the story, and especially the cow in simply terms of her emotions is just incredible, and I really enjoyed that. And I don't think I've ever had a, seen a better characterization of the emotional life of an animal <laughs> but i don't think so either that was part of the one of the things that really struck me when i had read it for the first time which is like wow I, I relate to this cow so speaking of senseless tragedy let's talk about the third son let's so the third son in essence is a much simpler story in short an old woman dies in a provincial town her husband who is a retired worker sends telegraphs to all his sons to come home he has six sons in total, and at this point in their lives, they are all fantastically successful. From the ages of 20 to 40, there are captains of ships, there are actors in Moscow studios, there are physicists, there are studying agronomists, all kinds of things, and so they all arrive to mourn their mother. And the third son brings his daughter, a six-year-old who has never met her grandfather, and the mother is still being kept at home, and the sons arrive to grieve, and they spend an evening together they invite a priest over to give a, a last rite, which the mother kind of wanted, but she didn't want to embarrass her sons, who are, of course, uh, you know, men of note in the Soviet Union. So the priest gives a private rite in the room, and then everyone is kind of just watches, and the priest basically thanks them. He accepts his payment, and he leaves. 
the old man goes to bed, granddaughter is laid down beside him, and the six sons go to another room and spend half the night kind of having lots of fun, joking around, talking, keeping the old man and, and his granddaughter up, until finally the third son, who has said almost nothing this entire time, says something which the old man cannot hear, quiets everyone else down, and then comes into the room to see his mother. He sits at her feet, he considers her body, and then after a moment he faints. All the other sons rush in, they help him up, and once he's come around, he seems healthy, he's okay, at that point they all disperse, and even fully dressed, in the middle of the night they begin to wander around the yard where they had grown up, and in their own way, all six of the boys grieve. Finally, the next morning, they all take part in the funeral, and the grandfather, as he watches his sons carry his wife to her grave, he thinks that he's proud because he too, he knows, will soon be dead, and he would be buried by these six powerful men, and buried no less properly. So, <laughs> so on, on, its, on its face, this is like a really sad story because this is a story about grief, but also I think this is a really kind of inspiring story in a way. Hmm. How, do, how do you approach it? For me, one of the main things goes back to this generational divide. And I think it's even starker than when we had discussed Fathers and Children by Turgenev. I was really most interested when I was reading this in the relationship between the priest, the dead mother, and the sons. Mm -hmm. There's this really interesting line that the priest thinks to himself when you get inside of his perspective where he says, or where the narrator says, really, he would have liked to stay in the house for the week, discuss the prospects of wars and revolutions, and draw lasting comfort from a meeting with the representatives of the new world he secretly admired but was unable to enter. And I just thought it was really interesting the way that the Orthodox priest was portrayed in this in the sense that he knows that what he's doing i don't know not that what he's doing is like doesn't hold any value anymore but i feel like as he's performing the service he realizes that it means nothing to the people around him and his interests have already shifted and he's also curious as to what is to come and mm -hmm. he still feels as if he's unable to enter this world Right. Although he tries, he writes letters to the local communist party mm -hmm. and offers <laughs> to do great feats for them. Yeah. But they never get back to him. Yep. 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 How do you feel that this is a, a, a positive or an inspiring story? I think it's interesting because getting back to, <laughs> I want to go back to that criticism of Platonov for a second, mm -hmm. that he's basically a shadow who stalks every mute tragedy in an attempt to give it some you know, greater meaning or at least some sorrow in the reader. And I think that's kind of true in this sense. This is a very normal story in a sense. It's uh, the death of a grandmother, or in this case, a woman who has a grandmother but primarily relates to her, her own children. And it's them coming back and seeing each other for the first time in many years, of course, um, the third son, his daughter is six, and she's never met her grandfather. The other sons are, uh, you know, running factories and, and commanding ships, and they have not come home in many, many years. In fact, they have not seen each other in many years, and at some point they begin to wonder when is the next time they will see each other, because they don't really know. It's a very normal story. This is a story that's played out hundreds, if not thousands of times mm -hmm. in recent memory, of course, uh, you know, across the world. However, I feel that this is a ultimately positive story because it's basically dealing with this very normal tragedy. I think it's interesting that when everyone comes back together, at first they're kind of, they're almost denying what has just happened. When the sons are all together, they start, they're joking around, all the, all the brothers are trying to get their, their actor brother to sing for them 
two of them begin to wrestle. And it's not until the third son says something which we never know and is perhaps not important that they all quiet down. And the third son comes in and he faints at the feet of his mother. And at that point, finally, they all actually begin to truly grieve once they brought the, their brother around. Up to that point, they've been kind of silent and felt, as it said, they felt lonely and frightened when they first arrived back to see their mother. And it's after this, the third brother has been brought around that they, in the middle of the night, just dressed as if it were daytime, begin to wander in the yard. And then one by one, they, I'm going to quote here, one by one, they went off in secret about the apartment through the yard and the entire night around the building where they had lived as children. And there they wept, whispering words and laments, as if the mother were standing over each one of them, listening to him and grieving that she had died and made her children yearn for her. Had she been able to, she would have stayed forever so that no one would pine for her or expand on her a heart and body to which she had given birth. But the mother had not endured living long. And that sounds like a very depressing thing. However, I would say that the fact that they are truly dealing with the fact that their mother is gone rather than earlier, they feel lonely. And the metaphor that's used is as if a candle that's had lit a yard, which they are so familiar with, has finally gone out. And the door, which had always been open, even though they had never chosen to return, had finally been closed. And they get away from just that feeling of loneliness and begin to accept that she's gone, which is, again, a normal set of emotions for grief. And I, that's why I say I think it's a positive thing, because you begin to see people not just embroiled in grief, grief, but moving forward with that grief. And in the very last line of the story, uh, of course, death will come again, as it always does, but especially for this old man. And at this point, he is no longer afraid or sad. By now, it's mentioned he's used to missing his wife. He's pleased that he's going to be buried by his sons and buried just as properly as his wife is being buried. And, and he's, he's glad that he has raised these six boys and that he's been go going to be put in the ground by six boys that he's proud of. I think it's worth looking at a little bit the role of the titular third son. It's something that you touched on briefly. And I think it's something that's actually pretty deeply coded here. It's not mm. something that I certainly noticed on my first read around. That is the third son who's described as the physicist and the party member. If you notice, he is the only one of the six sons who is a communist party member. And this is a positive attribute, I think, that Platonov is giving. He is the one who is the furthest advanced emotionally and intellectually. He is the one who is able to calm down his five brothers who are sitting in the room next to his next to their dead mother and fighting and singing and just having a good time I, I i don't know what he said to them but i imagine it's something to the effect of um can you stop messing around our mother is literally laying in her coffin in the next room over this is not appropriate um and so i think it's interesting to look at the way that first of all he's coded throughout the story party member that's the big attribute that he gets from Platonov. Mm -hmm. And I, I think right. it's it's necessary to see how that plays into kind of his ideology and just general advancement. The rest of the brothers are, I guess they do have their own characteristics, but not that they're boring, but they're very childish throughout most of it until he has that talk of almost conversion and converts them to this serious mindset to basically help bury their mother right and i think that there is i would venture to guess some religious imagery at play here 
I would argue probably that a significant portion of Christian imagery and hagiography and a lot of things were appropriated by the Soviets. But the fact that Platonov made him the third son instead of the fourth son or the second son or the first son as first son, like a leader, literally any number of the sons plays into the idea of the Trinity and kind of the natural spiritual leader of the group of sons. Uh, I, I don't think it's mm. unintentional that he chose that number. Right. Perhaps it's reading too much into it, but I always think when Russians put the number three into something that they knew what they were doing. <laughs> Building on that idea, it's perhaps no accident that he is the only one who has a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, the daughter, who the grandfather grows quite attached to in the short time that he has known her since she's come with his third son. The only interaction the two really have, or at least the only one that's mentioned, is in the middle of the night when the old man is kind of feeling sad and, and the little girl kind of bursts out crying. You know, the old man basically tries to comfort her. While he's comforting her, he, he may himself be crying a little bit, although it's not made explicit. And the little girl says, are you missing Granny? Please don't cry. You're old too. You'll die soon. And then you'll stop crying anyway. And the old man says, I'll stop. <laughs> Which is like, <laughs> I mean, that's something a kid would say probably. Uh, it's a little it's a little borderline, but I think that this is not an unimportant line because the kid's like basically asking the old man not to pity himself or pity granny, pity the dead or pity the soon to be dead. And, and says that, you know, there's no reason to cry because you're going to be there soon too. So maybe you should enjoy what is left until then. Yeah, I don't know if it's right to classify. I don't know how to classify her. It's part of the issue in the analysis for me. I I would say that she represents even the most extreme difference between the priest who is performing a funeral rite over a dead body and this granddaughter who says, stop crying over your dead wife. You're going to be dead soon. What do you care? Hmm. (laughs) It's like this (laughs) extreme contrast between generations because... Mm. Platano doesn't give you just one generation. He actually gives you two throughout the story. And so I think that this is a really critical scene to look at because if he didn't want to achieve that effect, he would have just not included the granddaughter. He definitely didn't need to. And so I think that this cues you into something that's really important. Uh, and right. what exactly that is, I don't know, but I would venture a guess and say it's a very different mentality when it comes to the relationship between material life and spirituality. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think there's something there that's speaking to different relationships. The, the girl is not, like, not sad about her grandmother. In fact, in, in this scene, she bursts out crying. She says, because poor granny, everyone's alive and she's dead on her own. Mm-hmm. And so she's not unfeeling about her grandmother. However, she is, because she's not immediately attached to her grandmother, she is sympathetic to the idea of, of the fact that her grandmother's all alone. And when her grandfather's crying, she is initially sympathetic but she kind of asks him like well why are you crying i've stopped well soon you'll you'll be with her and i think there's an implication there at least when i read it the implication was well then granny won't be alone and neither will you yeah that is also possible (laughs) (laughs) i feel like there's a lot of ways to read this story that's kind of the fun thing that i like about platonov there's a lot of not just nuance actually quite the opposite some of the things are just very vague and you can interpret them in the way that you would like (laughs) Yeah, that's something that I have greatly enjoyed in the stories I've been reading so far. And I will, as soon as I have the time, I think I'm going to tackle Soul because that oh, sounds... we together will tackle Soul. Let me let me tell you, as someone who's read it, 
and swore just this morning, but I don't think I'd want to read it again. <laughs> it's written for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the Raymond Chandler intro, which gave some background on it, made me like really want to read it. Um, right. I've never read I've never read the words erotic and grief so many times in oh, 20 boy. pages. <laughs> yeah, it's not exciting the way you think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be. It sounds intriguing. Mm, in a way. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, so I think that about wraps up our discussion on these two short stories. Of course, there's so much more to talk about about Platonov, and we could keep going for hours and hours, but you'd probably stop listening. Uh, so... You know, if you have any commentary, we would, of course, love to hear it on anywhere we are. But before we get to all the places that we are located on the Internet, Matt, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I'm actually pretty good. I feel like I don't know if I could have hit a full Yeltsin tonight, but if I was anywhere close, I was only knocked down by the fact that I had to discuss a story about both a cow and a grandmother dying and the family's... (laughs) reliving the grief of that uh yep how about you cameron (laughs) well (laughs) i immediately got off work and then came home to record this episode and so i'm probably at about a three Mm. because um there's only so much drinking you can do when you've just come home sit down and immediately start talking about uh dead people and and dying cows yeah, well, with that attitude, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I should have been. I, when I when you were talking, I was mostly trying to get my cat off my keyboard. Maybe I should have been focusing on shotgunning my beers. <laughs> um, <laughs> next time, I'll, I'll, I'll incorporate the, those notes into next time. Please. I think that will about do us for this week. What are we reading next week? Next week, we're going to be taking a slight detour from the prose that we've been doing the last couple of weeks, and we're going to take a look at some poetry Yes, I know. Some poetry. Next week, we are going to be reading Anna Akhmatova's Requiem, Lot's Wife, and Song of the Final Meeting. So definitely tune in. It'll be much different than what we've been doing with prose. We're going to be taking a deep dive both into the meaning of her works, but also some of the syntax, the actual grammar, the meat of the poetry. So hopefully it'll be entertaining uh again it'll be very different so you know bring your notebooks take some notes learn a little something (laughs) i am super excited to translate all these poems into english then be driven to despair by how why the divide is between my translation and actual translations (laughs) which have taken into account like a poetic meaning in english rather than literally what's on the page it'll be so much fun yeah Well, until then, our music used this week was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you enjoyed the episode, well, first of all, that makes us happy, but also grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you happen to have a few dollars to spare, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. It'll help us buy the books we'll be reading in the future. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or visit our website tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.